Let's pray and ask God for his help. Please pray with me. Almighty God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your word that was just read for us. We pray now that you help us to understand what it says. We pray that you will give us um, wisdom to know how to put, us in, put it into practice in our lives and you'll give us strength to be able to not just hear what you say but to do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Clive Hamilton is the director of the Australia Institute. In 2005, Hamilton described... Uh, what he said is a dangerous epidemic that he says is taking hold in Australia. The epidemic is worst in the city of Sydney, but it can be seen right through the country. Hamilton says that it is an epidemic of, and I quote, overconsumption, debt and stress. He calls it, following a 1997 American documentary, Affluenza. In one book, affluenza is described as, and I quote, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety and waste, overload, debt, anxiety and waste, resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Hamilton writes that affluenza is endemic in Australian culture. He says, the Australian dream, this is a quote from him, the Australian dream is an inflated one and becoming increasingly dreamlike. Yet people continue to chase it. Hamilton uses all kinds of figures to back up his diagnosis. Uh, For example, uh, did you know surveys show that two-thirds of Australians feel that they can't afford to buy what they need? Two out of three Australians think that they can't afford to buy what they need. And yet at the same time, Australia is the third largest generator of landfill in the world per capita. We throw away more than just about anyone else in the entire world. Many Australians describe themselves as being under great stress, and particularly financial stress. And much of it comes from spending beyond our means. 2010 Reserve Bank figures indicate that the average Australian adult was $74,000 in debt. Hamilton writes that affluenza is to blame at a personal level for, and I quote, psychological disorders, alienation and distress. That's at a personal level. But he also reckons that this epidemic is harming Australian society. He writes that because of affluenza, and I quote again, because of affluenza, we have collectively given up on the idea that we can make a better society. Of course, affluenza is not a physical or biological sickness or disease. It's a function of our greed, of our sin. It's a spiritual problem. And of course, it's not a new thing at all. In fact, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus warned his disciples about it. So we're continuing our studies in Matthew's Gospel. We've been working through Matthew's Gospel all this year so far, and we will for the rest of the year. And uh, at the moment, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, and he's been describing for them what it means to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And he's been telling them the kind of righteousness that is expected in God's kingdom. The kind of righteousness that you will need to have if if you're going to be able to get in to God's kingdom. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said it. Chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, that's the religious leaders in Jesus' day, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus has talked about, um, he's talked about how much you need to obey God's law to get into God's kingdom. He says the standard is perfection. You need to obey perfectly, not just in your actions, not just externally, but in your heart and in your words as well. Jesus has gone on to talk about the kind of religious practice that we need to get into God's kingdom. And again, it's got to be done from your heart. When you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, you've got to do it for God, not to impress people. It's been a high standard. Jesus has set the bar very high. And now Jesus continues by turning to the issue of how we deal with the things of this world. Money, food, drink, clothes, Uh, if it had been written 2,000 years later, iPods, TVs, cars, technology, uh, the the, the things that we have here and now in this life. He talks about how we need to relate to the stuff of this world if we're going to get into God's kingdom. How our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law in this area. Now, the Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law... Like most religious people in history, they did pretty well financially. Their religion made them sensible, it made them responsible. They weren't big drinkers, they weren't big gamblers, they were disciplined, they were wise, they worked hard, they valued education, and so they were financially successful, they were prosperous. Of course, that, with, that, with that, though, came the temptation to, um, to love the money that they had earned, to love the things that they were able to have. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, it talks about how the Pharisees loved money. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were very much like us. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were very much like us. Helped along by their religion, they were well-educated and they were hard-working. Following God's good ways had led them to success here in this world. But with that came temptation. The same temptation we face, the temptation to affluenza. The temptation to to love and long for the stuff of this world as if it's going to fix your life up. The temptation to, to, to live for the stuff of this world. Now in this next section of his sermon, Jesus warns his disciples about it. And what he does, he just piles up image after image after image. Um, He begins with the image of storing up treasure. Storing up treasure is not something we really do today. It's it's a common image from back in that day. Back in that day, um, you didn't just put your money in a bank and track it on the internet or something like that. Back in those days, banks were very rare. If you had money to spare, what you would do is buy stuff like gold or or, or, jewels or something like that or, or clothes or something. You'd buy expensive stuff and you'd store it up. You'd keep it in like a locked box or a locked room or something like that. You keep it there for safekeeping. Um, Watching the news recently, I guess even in some countries, it's probably a safer way than banks uh, to save your money at the moment. But uh, anyway, Jesus picks up on this image 
He talks about uh, earthly treasure. He says earthly treasure is temporary. It's soon gone. He compares it with, uh, he contrasts it with heavenly treasure. Heavenly treasure being part of God's kingdom. Being part of God's kingdom. He says that is permanent. Nothing can take that away. And so Jesus says, he says, go for the heavenly treasure. Go for the permanent stuff. Go for the heavenly treasure. Store up heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Have a look with me. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus then talks about our hearts. Now, don't be confused when you read the Bible. Heart in the Bible is not love heart. It's not talking about romance or something like that. Your heart in, in Bible times, it means, it means your true character, who you really are on the inside. Jesus says this. He says, what you store up, what you value, what you live for, it changes who you are. If you live for this world, it will change you. If you live for God's kingdom, it will change you. Either way, it'll shape your heart. It'll define, it'll mould your character. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus now picks up on this image of, of where our treasure is, there our heart is, how, how what we seek after changes us. But he changes image a little bit. This time he talks about our eyes. It's an image of what we're, what we're looking for, what we're seeking after. Jesus says, your eye can bring light or darkness to your whole body, to your whole life. In other words, what you seek after, again, will change you, will change your whole life. If you seek after the stuff of this world, Jesus says, it will bring darkness to your life. Darkness, I think, is a metaphor for evil character. It will change you for the worse, here and now, and long term. It'll bring profound darkness. Uh, what you seek after, if you seek after the things of this world, it'll bring darkness. And, and if that is your whole life orientation, then it, it brings utter blackness to your life. But if you seek after... God's kingdom, that'll bring light to your life. It'll change you for the better. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are uh, bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How profound your life is darkened if your whole orientation is towards this world. Jesus changes image again. Uh, this time he talks about slavery. Um, slavery is, of course, extremely common in our world today, but not so much in our society. But back in those days, slavery was very common. A slavery is where a person is owned by another person. It's where a person owns another person. Uh, the thing about slavery, though, you can only have one master. You can only have one master, one owner. Jesus picks up on this image and he applies it to the idea of God and money. 
He says, you can't have two owners. If God is your owner, you can't be owned by money. If you want to seek for God's kingdom, you can't be a slave of this world. Verse 24. No one can literally be a slave to two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to both God and money. Okay, what have we got so far? Image after image. Um, store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Uh, what you treasure will change who you are. Set your eyes on God's kingdom, not this world, because it'll bring light or darkness to your life. Um, have, have God as your master, not money. Lots of images, but it's all saying the same thing, isn't it? It's all making exactly the same point. Jesus is saying, live for God's kingdom, don't live for this world. Jesus now goes on to talk about one particular aspect of living for this world, one particular aspect, and that's the aspect of, of, of worrying about the things of this world, worrying about food and clothes and stuff. Now, Clive Hamilton points out in his book that worry is endemic in Australian society, and he says it's very ironic because we have better living conditions than practically anyone anywhere in the entirety of history. We have more and better food, particularly if you live in Chatswood. You can eat anything. We have more and better clothes, particularly if you live in Chatswood. We have better housing. We are safer than anybody has been anywhere in history. We have better health care, longer lifespan, better expectancy of life for our children. We have the most, humanly speaking, physically speaking, magnificent, safe, beautiful lives, and yet as a society, Hamilton points out that we are characterised by constant anxiety and depression and it is increasing in the opposite rate to, to, to our living standards going up. So as our living standard goes up, our anxiety and depression seems to be going up. Of course, that's not just a phenomenon out there, is it? Uh, that, that's true among us as well, isn't it? Uh, most of us, no, no, all of us, all of us worry, don't we? We worry about stuff in our lives here anxious, we're stressed. Well, Jesus gives seven reasons why we shouldn't be. Seven reasons why we should seek God's kingdom and stop stressing about earthly things. Seven, re seven reasons. Seven reasons. First reason is in verse 25. Jesus says, this is an amazing thing to say, Jesus says, there's more to life. There's more to life than food. There's more to your body than clothes. In other words, we're not just physical beings. We're not just like machines that if you put the fuel in and cover it properly and oil it and grease it, then everything's going to be fine. No, 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 no. That's not what our life is all about. We are made in the image of God for relationship with God. We are made to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. We have a profound, magnificent reason for existence, but if you focus your life on this world, if you spend your life stressing about the things of this world, you're missing the big picture of what your whole life is about. You're missing out on what's really important. You're missing out on the very meaning and purpose of your life. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Here's that first reason. Is not life more important than food? And the body 
more important than clothes. There's more to life. Reason number two, second reason. It's in verse 26. Jesus says, learn a lesson from the birds. God provides food for the birds. They don't spend their lives stressing out about it. God provides food for the birds. Jesus says, you are more important to God than a bird. So why are you spending your life stressing about what you're going to eat? Verse 26. 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Reason number three. Reason number three is in verse 27. Worry, it's futile. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't achieve anything. Worry is a waste of time. Verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Reason number four. Fourth reason, the lesson of the flowers. Similar to to the lesson of the birds, Jesus says... God clothes the flowers beautifully. They've never been to the chase. They've never stressed about a dress shop. They've never been to David Lawrence or something like that. They don't spend their lives stressing about being beautiful and yet they are beautifully clothed. You are more important to God than a flower. Why do you spend your life stressing about what what you're going to wear, about clothes? Verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies, the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even King Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Reason number five. Reason number five is this. Worry is a godless thing to do. Worry is a godless thing to do. If you are in God's kingdom, you have God as your father. Your father who cares for you. Your father who provides for you. Your father who knows what you need. Your father who has your best at heart. Your father whom you can trust People in God's kingdom who have this father, they ought to be different from people who don't know God, from pagans. They ought to be different because they ought to be able to trust their father and stop worrying about the stuff of this world. Verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Reason number six. Jesus gives his sixth reason in verse 33. He says, God will provide for those people who seek his kingdom as first priority. God will provide. We shouldn't worry about the stuff of this world. Instead, what we should do is this. We should set our hearts, set our eyes, set our lives on God's kingdom, on pleasing God, on living for God. Now, most people, they take Jesus' promise here as a promise for this life. 
If you seek God's kingdom, then you'll get all the food and clothes you need here and now. Uh, in the light of the Sermon on the Mount so far, that, that was my view, but in the light of having read the Sermon on the Mount now and worked through it with you, I've changed my mind. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying anymore, particularly in light of the Beatitudes. I think that what Jesus is saying is that God will give us everything we need in his kingdom. And, of course, the reality is there have been plenty of people who have um, sought God's kingdom in history and in this world and starved to death. I don't think this is a promise for this life. I think what Jesus is saying is this. In God's kingdom, we will have everything we need and we're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to get to God's kingdom and be sitting there in God's kingdom and say, I really wish I'd eaten better on earth. I wish I'd gone for that butter chicken. I wish I'd eaten those dim sims instead of serving God, instead of spending my money on him, because the food here is hopeless. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be in God's kingdom and say, I wish I'd bought more dresses on earth. I wish I'd had another few trips to David Lawrence. Instead of spending my money on serving God, instead of giving my money to mission, I wish I'd bought more dresses on earth because the clothes here, they're so drab. It's not going to happen. We're not going to be disappointed. God will provide. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Last reason. Jesus gives his seventh and final reason not to worry. He says, this life, it's going to be full of trouble. There's always going to be something to stress about. Uh, Each day, it's going to have enough trouble of its own without worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. This world is going to be tough, but worrying about it is not going to fix it. Worrying is just going to make it worse. Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, seven reasons. Can you see them? Seven reasons not to worry. All piled on top of each other, one after the other. If you, if you worry about the stuff of this life, you're forgetting what your life's really, what you, what's really important, what your life's really on about. Uh, You are more valuable to God than birds, and he feeds them. Worry doesn't change anything. You're more valuable to God than flowers, and he clothes them. God is a father you can trust. God will give you everything in his kingdom. Worrying about life will just make it worse. These are good reasons, don't you reckon? These are compelling reasons to stop Worrying. All right. Can you see the point of what Jesus is saying in this passage? If you put it all together, what's he saying? He's saying live for God's kingdom. Don't live for the things of this world. Spend your life, spend your time, spend your effort, spend your stress and money on trying to please God, not on food, clothing, houses, technology, stuff. Jesus is saying stop worrying about this temporary world. Trust God and live for him. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Until you think about what it will actually mean for our lives. 
So let's think about it. What do we do with this passage? How does it apply to us today? Now, at the risk of being very boring, I want to make the same four points that I've made in every talk so far uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. You can see them on your outline. Point number one, the first point is this. I look at what Jesus says here, and I love it. It makes such good sense. What Jesus says here, this is who I would like to be. I want to be a person who knows God as my heavenly father. I think of myself as a father, as pathetic and sinful as I am, but I passionately adore my children. I want the very best for them. For me to know God as a father like that, who cares for me, I want that. I want to be a person who believes that God's kingdom is real, that God's kingdom is more valuable than the temporary treasures of this world. I want to be a person who who therefore seeks God's kingdom as number one priority. I want to be a person who doesn't stress about it and seek after the things of this world, but who genuinely loves God and, and lives to please him. I can see that is what would be pleasing to God. I can see that is the best way to live. It would be so much more pleasant and, and, and so much more sensible, and, and I'd like to do it. But sadly, there's point number two. Yeah, the second point, this is not who I am. I'm a person who does worry. Who does worry about money and stuff. I worry about my mortgage. I worry about the credit card. I worry about the school fees and the other bills that come in. I worry about my job and my children's education. And at any one point I can tell you a thousand different things to worry about. And I do seek after the things of this world. I I watch an ad on TV and I realise I need all this stuff that I don't even know I needed before I saw the ad. I I flick through the catalogues that come in the mail and there's heaps of things that I want. It's hard to be satisfied with anything that isn't the latest and greatest, whether it's car or TV or technology or whatever. My treasure is often in the things of this world. My eyes are often set on the things of this world. I try to live with two owners. And that has changed my heart. That has brought darkness to who I am. It's made me greedy, selfish. It stops me from being content. It stops me from being generous. I'm reading a book at the moment uh, by Tim Keller called Generous Justice. And I have to say, I read it, and it's, it's not overstated. He just goes through the Bible and talks about how genuine Christianity must work itself out in generosity to the poor, and it is just miles removed from my life. It's overwhelming. I look at what Jesus says here, and it's perfectly clear. On the basis of my seeking God's kingdom... On the basis of me choosing God over the stuff of this world, I will, chapter 5, verse 20, certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has set the standard, and I don't meet it. And I'm not alone, am I? You don't meet Jesus' standard either. 
Do you? You're not going to make it either. Uh, there's a famous story of a, a kind of a trap that they use to trap monkeys. It's very simple. It's a, it's, a, it's a box, and it's got a small hole, and inside the box is a peanut. And the monkey can put its hand into the hole and take its hand out when its hand is open. But if it grabs the peanut, it can't get its hand out. And it works. The monkey gets in there, grabs hold of the peanut and cannot pull its hand out. And it stays there until the people come and catch it and kill it and eat it. It's us, isn't it? We are so busy holding on to the things of this world that we have closed the gates of heaven to ourselves. Well, praise God, there's point number three. Third point. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he did come to fulfill them. Jesus always sought first God's kingdom. Uh, we saw it just magnificently when, when he was in the wilderness, didn't we, even, even here in Matthew's Gospel? There he is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's, he's starving. He's hot. He's tired. But the devil comes, and Jesus shows so clearly it is God first, food second. It, it is God first, Comfort second. It is God first. Power, success, career second. It is God first. Or, or John chapter 4, Jesus says an amazing thing. He says, My food is not hummus or tabbouleh. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus valued God and his kingdom over and above the stuff of this world until ultimately Jesus gave his life in obedience to God. Jesus died on that cross to win for himself treasure in heaven, the treasure of his people who will trust him and be forgiven and able to enter God's kingdom. Jesus sought God's kingdom and his righteousness even to death on a cross and now God has raised Jesus to life again and through Jesus, God has thrown open the gates of his kingdom. He's thrown them open even even to selfish, dark-hearted, money-enslaved, world-worrying people like you and me. The gates are open. And so to our final point, point number four, how should we respond to what Jesus says here? Well, first and foremost, we've got to rely on him, don't we? We must entrust our lives to Jesus. We are not going to get ourselves into heaven. We are world, way too worldly. We're, we're, our hand is too firmly gripped on that peanut. There's no way we're going to get out of the trap. We need Jesus to, to drag us into heaven. Friend, please do not think you're going to make it into heaven, into God's kingdom on your own. Jesus is clear. Please put your faith in him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to bring you into God's kingdom. It's the only way that you could ever be part of the kingdom of heaven is if Jesus brings you there. Please, friends, put your faith in him. Rely on him. But we don't want to just leave it there. Because as people forgiven by Jesus, we need to listen to him. We need to listen to what he says. We're going to see that really clearly next week. Are you preaching in this year's service, Matt, next week? Or is it uh, Marty in the evening? Um, He's, we're going to see that to build your life on the rock is not just to hear Jesus' words, but it's to do them. Uh, if you're relying on Jesus 
You have a place in God's kingdom. If you are relying on Jesus, you have a place in the kingdom of God. And the news, it couldn't be any better. Nothing can ever take God's kingdom away from you. You have a treasure that no one can steal. You have a treasure that will not get eaten. You have a treasure that's not going to rust away. You have a treasure that's not going to be replaced by version 5.2 or something like that. You have a treasure that is yours forever. And as as part of God's kingdom, you have a heavenly father. You have a father who knows what you need. You have a father who values you more than any animal or plant or anything else that he's ever created in the world or heaven or space or anywhere. You have a father who loves you and has plenty stored up for you in his kingdom. You have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a father who loves you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you genuinely believe that? Do you? Do you? Then friend, stop living like a pagan. Stop living like a pagan. Stop worrying so much about the stuff of this world. Stop storing up earthly treasures. Stop fixing your eyes on this world. Stop trying to serve two masters. Instead, seek God's kingdom. Seek this kingdom that cannot be taken. Love this Father who loves and cares for you. Make pleasing him your number one priority. Learn to be content with what you have in this life. Learn to be generous with what you have in this life. Learn to love God, friend, I suspect... I don't suspect, I know that we all have a dose, a serious dose of affluenza, don't we? We have a serious dose of affluenza. And spiritually speaking, it is a deadly disease. It darkens our lives here and now and uncured, it will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we need to repent of our passion, of our longing for the things of this world. We need to live instead for our heavenly father and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious and holy and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this wonderful news that your kingdom is open to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him we have treasure that can never be taken away. Thank you that in your kingdom you are our loving Father who provides for us and knows what we need. Father, we are so sorry that we don't believe it. Would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you please forgive us for our love for this world? Will you please help us to, to trust you, to believe you, to love you, and to seek first your kingdom? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.